Chapter 51 of The Wild Huntress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annabel Smith. The Wild Huntress by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter 51 The Orphan Butte. The landscape over which we were looking was one that has long been celebrated in the legends of trapper and sibilero and certainly no lovelier is to be met with in the midland regions of america though new to my eyes i recognized it from the descriptions i had read and heard of it there was an idiosyncrasy in its features especially in that lone mound rising conspicuously in its midst which at once proclaimed it the valley of the huerfano there stood the orphan butte there was no mistaking its identity. This valley, or more properly, valet, a word of very different signification, is in reality a level plain, flanked on each side by a continuous line of bluffs or benches, themselves forming the abutments of a still higher plain, which constitutes the general level of the country. The width between the bluffs is five or six miles, but at the distance of some ten miles from our point of view, the cliffs converge, apparently closing in the valley in that direction. This, however, is only apparent. Above the butte is another deep canyon, through which the river has cleft its way. The intervening space is a picture fair to behold. The surface, level as a billiard table, is covered with gramma grass, of a bright, almost emerald verdure. The uniformity of this color is relieved by cottonwood copses, whose foliage is but one shade darker. Commingling with these, and again slightly darkening the hue of the frondage, are other trees, with a variety of shrubs or climbing plants, as clematis, wild roses, and willows. Here and there, a noble poplar stands apart, as if disdaining to associate with the more lowly growth of the groves. These topes are of varied forms, some rounded, some oval, and others of more irregular shape. Many of them appear as if planted by the hands of the landscape gardener, while the huerfano, winding through their midst, could not have been more gracefully guided had it been specially designed for an ornamental water. The butte itself, rising in the center of the plain and towering nearly two hundred feet above the general level, has all the semblance of an artificial work, not of human hands, but a cairn constructed by giants. Just such does it appear, a vast pyramidal cone, composed of huge prismatic blocks of granite, black almost as a coal, the dark color being occasioned by an iron admixture in the rock. For two-thirds of its slope, a thick growth of cedar covers the mound with a skirting of darkest green. Above this appear the dark naked prisms, piled one upon the other in a sort of irregular crystallization, and ending in a summit slightly truncated. Detached boulders lie around its base, huge pieces that, having yielded to the disintegrating influences of rain and wind, had lost their balance and rolled down the declivity of its sides. No other similar elevation is near the distant bluffs alone equaling it in height. But there the resemblance ends, for the latter are a formation of stratified sandstone, while the rocks composing the butte are purely granitic. 
even in a geological point of view, is the Orphan Butte isolated from all the world. In a double sense, does it merit its distinctive title? Singular is the picture formed by the Sloan Mound, and the park-like scene that surrounds it, a picture rare as fair. Its very framing is peculiar, the bench of light reddish sandstone sharply outlined on each edge, the bright green of the sward along its base, and the dark belt of cedars cresting its summit form, as it were, a double molding to the frame. Over this can be distinguished the severer outline of the great cordilleras. Above them, again, the twin cones of the Watuye, and grandly towering over all, the sharp, sky-piercing summit of Pike's Peak. All these forms, gleaming in the full light of a noonday sun, with a heaven above them of deep ethereal blue, present a picture that for grandeur and sublimity is not surpassed upon the earth. A long while could we have gazed upon it, but an object that came at once under our eyes turned our thoughts into a far different channel. Away up the valley, at its furthest end, appeared a small white spot, little bigger to our view than the disk of an archer's target. It was of an irregular roundish form, and on both sides of it were other shapes, smaller and of darker hue. We had no difficulty in making out what these appearances were. The white object was the tilt of a wagon, the dark forms around it were those of men, mounted and afoot. It must have been the last wagon of the train, since no other could be seen, and as it appeared at the very end of the valley, in the angle formed by the convergence of the cliffs, we concluded that there the cannon opened into which the rest had entered. Whether the wagon scene was moving onward, we did not stay to determine. The caravan was in sight, and this, acting upon us like an electric influence, impelled us to hasten forward. Calling to our companions to advance, we remounted our horses, rode out of the gorge, and kept on up the valley. We no longer observed the slightest caution. The caravan was before our eyes, and there could be no doubt that, in a couple of hours, we should be able to come up with it. As to danger, we no longer thought of such a thing. Indians would scarcely be so daring as to assail us within sight of the train. Had it been night, we might have reasoned differently but under the broad light of day, we could not imagine there was the slightest prospect of danger. We resolved, therefore, to ride direct for the wagons without making halt. Yes, one halt was to be made. I had promised the sedivant soldiers to make civilians of them before bringing them face to face with the escort, and this was to be accomplished by means of some spare wardrobe which Wingrove and I chanced to have among our packs. The place fixed upon as the scene of the metamorphosis was the butte, which lay directly on our route. As we rode forward, I was gratified at perceiving that the wagon still remained in sight. If it was moving on, it had not yet reached the head of the valley. Perhaps it had stopped to receive some repairs? So much the better. We should the sooner overtake it. On arriving at the butte, the white canvas was still visible, though from our low position on the plain only the top of the tilt could be seen. While Wingrove was unpacking our spare garments, I dismounted and climbed to the summit of the mound in order to obtain a better view. I had no difficulty in getting up, for, strange to say, a trail runs over the Orphan Butte, from southeast to northwest, regularly aligned with Pike's Peak in the latter direction and with Spanish Peaks in the former. 
but this alignment was not the circumstance that struck me as singular. A far more curious phenomenon came under my observation. The path leading to the summit was entirely clear of the granite blocks that everywhere else covered the declivities of the mound. Between these it passed like a narrow lane, the huge prisms rising on each side of it, piled up in a regular trap-like formation as if placed there by the hand of man. The latter hypothesis was out of the question. Many of the blocks were a dozen feet in diameter, and tons in weight. Titans alone could have lifted them. The summit itself was a table of some twenty by forty feet in superficial extent, and seamed by several fissures. Only by following the path could the summit be reached without great difficulty. The loose boulders rested upon one another in such a fashion that even the most expert climber would have found difficulty in scaling them, and the stunted spreading cedars that grew between their clefts combined in forming a chevaux de frise, almost impenetrable. I was not permitted to dwell long on the contemplation of this geological phenomenon. On reaching the summit and directing my telescope up the valley, I obtained a tableau in its field of vision that almost caused me to drop the glass out of my fingers. The whole wagon was in view down to its wheel tracks, and the dark forms were still around it. Some were afoot, others on horseback, while a few appeared to be lying flat along the sward. Whoever these last may have been, I saw at the first glance what the others were. The bronzed skins of naked bodies, the masses of long-sweeping hair, the plumed crests and floating drapery were perfectly apparent in the glass, and all indicating a truth of terrible significance that the forms thus seen were those of savage men. Yes, both they on horseback and afoot were Indians beyond a doubt, and those horizontally extended, they were white men, the owners of the wagons? This truth flashed on me as I beheld a fearful object, a body lying head towards me, with its crown of mottled red and white, gleaming significantly through the glass. I had no doubt as to the nature of the object. It was a scalpless skull. End of chapter 51